Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 137. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Uh, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 137. You're listening to, and Moto the Bulldog has just walked into the room. Make make yourself at home there, buddy. Yeah. The snoring will commence momentarily. Stand by. Cup of coffee in hand, ready to go. Summertime, summertime, summertime. Doesn't matter how hot it gets, I seem to always find a place for a hot cup of coffee. And whenever you go into a coffee shop and order coffee, uh, these days, the uh, baristas or the person taking the order always says, will that be iced or hot? And, you know, it's a good question, but realistically, I always go for hot. Anyways, on to the business of things. My guest today is Anthony Gravino, who's an independent musician and record maker. You know, he produces, he records, he mixes, he masters. He's also a musician, uh, but he runs a private studio called The Drake, not to be confused with The Drake Hotel, but uh, both located in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, Anthony will be my guest today. He His studio is a very cool situation. We'll, we'll talk about it in the interview. Is It's the middle floor on a three-floor flat. So uh, yeah, Anthony Gravino coming up. Want to hammer this home, and I'm going to hammer it home for quite some time, so... Put your seatbelt on and get ready for it. The Ren M plugin that we talked about on session 136 with Kevin Becca. Want to make sure that if you're uh, if you haven't done it yet, download it. I'll include a link in the show notes. That's at soundways.com. That's at the, their website there. Make sure you uh, download it. Start gathering that metadata for any project that you're working on, and start you know talking about it because. Let me tell you, folks, if you want to get credit for this stuff and share in any whatever profits there are, if there are any, or if you just want to get the credit where credit is due, then get on board with this and uh, join us. Let's uh, let's do this metadata credit thing and, and get going on that. So long overdue. Uh, he's starting to snore. Yeah, he's totally starting to snore. He's not even asleep and he's already snoring. There he goes. Okay. Uh, what else did I want to talk to you about? Hey, you know, I've been doing a lot of, um, this summer's full of travel for me, and I want to hip you to this. My wife actually turned me on to this. It's called Seat Guru. It's seatguru.com. Here's the deal. So you go to book your flight, and unless it's a Southwest flight or one of those flights where it's, you know, kind of general admission on the seating, but if it's an assigned seat and you have to pick your seat, let's say like when I fly to mix with the masters to do the Chad Blake thing, uh, I'm flying Delta. And I had to pick my seat once I booked the ticket. Before you pick your seat, head on over to SeatGuru.com. And what it's going to tell you is it's going to tell you everything you need to know about that seat to make you happy, whether that's power. Does it not recline all the way? Is there anything funky about it, like a strange strange bulkhead thing that might be in your way if you're extra tall? How much leg room there is? All kinds of details about the seat. So check it out, seatguru.com. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And for those of you that listen only on like iTunes and you know other places and you never visit the website, visit the website because there's information there that you're going to want to get and check back with. So make sure you do that. So uh, what else? What else? Uh, still looking for a desk. Yeah, many of you have sent me some great desk ideas or audio desk ideas. And, you know, I'm looking into all the typical uh, or the all the usual suspects. One desk that's kind of come on my radar that uh, several of you sent, which was kind of funny that that many of you sent it, is from uh, the company, uh, I believe they are called Output, and they make software and virtual instruments. I know that sounds kind of weird, but yeah, they've decided that they've... Uh, they needed to make a desk that kind of worked in the vein of Ikea in terms of cost and the you build it factor. But they also wanted to make it uh, friendly for those who who do audio. So I'm looking at uh, output.com and checking it out. It's affordable. It's under a grand, which is good because, you know, some of these audio desks are like, 
don't know, they're ridiculous. Like $2,500, $3,000. And that's uh, just, you know, that's not in my, uh, that's not in my budget. I'm not planning to spend that kind of money on this. So yeah, you all check it out. See what you think. Output.com uh, platform is what the desk is called and uh, starts at 549. So I'm going to check that out. That may be the way to go for me. Although, yeah, still still debating it. Anyhow, yeah, checking it out. If you have any ideas, feel free to send me a message on Facebook. You can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And I got to mention our friends over at Universal Audio, the uh, Apollo Rack Dream Studio promotion, uh, I have mentioned many, many times, has been uh, extended until August 31st. And uh, after that, uh, that promotion will go away. But there is another cool thing they're doing. They're doing a... Um, thing where if you buy a 6176 vintage channel strip, you get a free UAD2 quad DSP accelerator. And that could be in the form of a Thunderbolt box, a Firewire box, or a PCIe card, satisfying all computer peripheral connections there. So that's cool. So check that out. Of course, go to uaudio.com and uh, be sure and stop over at uh, gearslets.com and check out Audio Life that we're sponsoring there and uh, join the conversation. And additionally, you know, once again, for those of you that haven't visited the website, please do that. You'll notice I've changed things around a bit. I've put the email list uh, on the right-hand side at the very top, just to remind you to sign up because each week we are sending out an email now. Yes, now I'm actually using the emails that uh, have come in and I'm sending out a, a once a week email and that will alert you to the new show. It'll include the show notes. So if you don't want to come over to the website and you just want to get it all in your inbox, that's cool. So yeah, sign up at uh, workingclassaudio.com. Hey, remind your friends, subscribe. iTunes, Stitcher, Android, SoundCloud. Although I don't know what the future of SoundCloud holds, so I'm not going to put a lot of faith in that based on what I've read. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So um, I think it's time to chat. So uh, let's talk to Anthony Gravino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. And you are in Chicago and you got a great website. You have kind of a, I think that's one of the things that pulled me in when I clicked on your about page and there's this little cartoon drawing. I should talk to him. <laughs> yeah, that was a controversial part of the website because I said to my web designer, I said, you know, is that, is this, I'm trying to not be narcissistic here. And she said, it's a cartoon drawing. That's like the least narcissistic thing you can do. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, we'll go, we'll do it. And a friend of mine did all those illustrations for me. He's a great musician who I work with all the time. And he also just always is drawing these little cartoons during the sessions on things. So like at the end of the session, you'll find something in the room. Then he's drawn this like little hilarious little cartoon. And I just thought, Oh, that would be so it's such a cool website to have all a bunch of cartoon drawings of studio things and stuff like that. So that's how that came I about. I think it was uh, uh my friend JJ Blair that was on the show. He's got a, a great studio in his house in in uh in Hollywood and he's had Rod Stewart over to his house several times and uh like a, I guess Rod Stewart leaves little drawings on in certain places. And so you'll, you know, open the door and be like, what the hell is this? oh Rod's drawn something else. <laughs> yeah, it's great though. I, I mean, I love that kind of stuff. It's it's you know it spices the sessions up a little bit. Tell me about your your early start and what preceded you getting into audio. Well, I started playing music when I was about thirteen years old, and I started playing guitar. I was big into just like rock and roll music, and uh, played in a ton of bands. I, I grew up in a small town, and you know played in with whatever guys I could find in that town and then went to college in another small town there and kept playing in bands. And then finally, in about 2000, I just decided, now I'm, I need to move to a big city and I need to pursue music because this is what I love. So I moved to Chicago, started playing in more bands, and then through that kind of got the bug for recording and worked with John Pines and Mark Grubel and uh, some other really good engineer producer guys. And then I got the bug for it, kind of watching that process, you know. So then I got a little rig and started recording my own stuff and inviting my friends over to record their stuff. And one thing led to another. And then somebody asked me to record their album for money. And then, you know, I did that. And then, you know, the phone kind of started ringing slowly but surely. And that was, you know, I started doing recording maybe like 13, 12 or 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. From a, 
a drive perspective, were you drawn to audio or did you just do it out of necessity? I was drawn to it. I mean, the first time I got into to the, the studio on a mix session, you know, I remember understanding immediately that the studio was this really powerful instrument, just like a guitar or a piano or, well, you know, and that you could use it in all these cool ways. And then it was kind of that duh moment where it was like, yeah, a lot of what I'm hearing on these albums that I love is crafted here in this room, you know, in the, in the control room. And there's a lot of creativity to be done there. And, you know, obviously it's a very deep cavern <laughs> to go into, but once I started learning a little bit, I just wanted more and more and more and more and more. So I was very, very driven to it. It's odd in that way. The more you learn, the more you're like, I want more. Yeah. It, yeah. It's addictive and it's a good thing to be addicted to, you know, like information. As you're sitting there, I see there's uh, some type of console next to you. I believe if I read your website correctly, that's one of the API box yeah. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is your studio in your house? It is. Yeah. I own a three flat building here. One of the floors is basically my studio and it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's rogue, but it's got high ceilings and I've had the rooms treated quite a bit. Uh, it's just really comfortable. You know, it's like, everything's pretty close. Nothing's too far away. A lot of the recording just happens in the room with me. I kind of like it that way. I just feel like I can get, you know, whatever I'm sacrificing and hearing the separation at the time, I think I kind of gain and just like intimacy with the, the artist. I know what you, what you just said, three flat, but it dawns on me that there are people who don't know what we're talking about. So basically, and, and make sure I'm actually not talking out my ass here, but uh, <laughs> maybe you're, it's a Victorian style thing, maybe not, but at least uh, you've got a level on the bottom, a level in the middle, and a level on top, all independently accessible, correct? Correct, yes. And where is the studio on the three levels? It's in the middle. Do you have a tenant? I have uh, partners who we all occupy different spaces and we're all <sighs> musical fellas and so, okay. um, actually the, 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 the guy who I was talking about who did my website drawings, he lives beneath me and he's a fantastic musician, creator, just a wonderful human being. And, uh, so we worked, we collaborate together on a lot of stuff. Did you do anything structurally to the flat to minimize or mitigate vibrations to the other, the other flats? Not really, other than just treat the rooms. It's rogue, you know, it's just, but you know, it's amazing when we, when I started doing this, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be such a problem. And I do have one room that's basically like, you know, a really dead room that I've really treated heavily. It's one, it's like the big bedroom basically. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good, like I can get, I can do, you know, voiceover in there and not have a problem. It's, it's tight. But yeah, there's tons of bleed between the places and it's just rarely an issue. And we just communicate and, you know, work around it and make a lot of music here. And, you know, he does stuff downstairs sometimes too, you know. <laughs> what other buildings surround the flat? Just other similar kind of buildings. They're more houses. We're like one of the only three flats on the block. So it's mostly just single family homes, but our neighbors and I, are, we're tight with our neighbors. So Okay. That's, you know, you know where I'm going with <laughs> oh, this. Oh, I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we knew all this would, would be a thing and, it, it, you know, honestly, a lot of the recording that I do that's loud, that's like bands and stuff like that. I do it at, at other studios and then I come back here and there's an overdubbing and mixing that happens here, but I don't, you know, I occasionally will track a trio in here or something like that, but that's that's the exception, not the rule. Usually I'm in a bigger room doing the basics and then bring it back here and kind of do overdubs here. Is this the the central money-making part of your life? In, in other words, do you have another gig? I don't have other no, gigs. No, I haven't had a job for about 10 years, I'd say, if you consider this a job, <laughs> but I don't really consider this a job. It's just yeah. getting paid it's to have fun. fun. For yeah. a job. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is this is all I do. What's I always ask this, and the answer seems to always be the same. It seems that the majority of people I talk to, word of mouth is always the way that they get gigs. Is that your case? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, same way that you found out about me, you know, just people talk, you know, people listen to records. I think that, you know, I have a lot of friends in the music scene. You know, before I started recording music, I was playing music and meeting musicians. And I think that's a big part of it, you know, because musicians listen to each other's records. You know, the local musicians on the scene are checking out the other local musicians' records. And if you can make one of those records sound really good, you know, it's maybe one or two guys that's going to check it out, is going to recognize that. And then they'll be making a record in six months or a year and maybe they'll call you, you know, and 
feel like that's how a lot of it happens for me. As far as management, do you have a manager or is it just you're running the show? I run the show. Um, I have some people who who bring me work regularly, but no, I don't have a representative or anything like that. Um, Sometimes I wish I did. Sometimes I'm glad I don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice when when you can have somebody dealing with the business end of it so you can concentrate on the artistic end of it. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I always... I'm so used to doing so much of everything on my own and I'm a I'm really bad at delegating things to people to do because I want it done in a particular way and I feel like such a jerk for no 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 I really want you to you know put it like this and word it like this and say it. you know having somebody the idea of having somebody else taking care of stuff uh unless they have a strong vision and a strong background uh, like we've had Frank McDonough on from McDonough Management, who represents, you know, like Andrew Shapps, Joe Barisi, and many, many, many others. You know, putting somebody like that in charge, I think, would be a little different. But just like a friend or an acquaintance or somebody, you know, that seems odd to me. Yeah, I, I think I, my own neuroses probably is <laughs> similar in that it's very hard for me to trust somebody to communicate for me to other people because I feel like so much of what you're projecting to them is you. It's just hard for me to imagine somebody else speaking for me and me feeling like they were really representing the way that I am and the, the way that I want to be towards clients. You know, It's like you said, it's got to be somebody who's really seasoned, who knows how to do that, who knows that process. And quite frankly, those people are, are not common. What is your approach with your clients? If, is there, could you put it in words? That's a good question. My approach is I try to first just establish a relationship of trust where I they know that what I'm trying to do is make things better and that I don't have any kind of, you know, agenda for myself and the project. I try to establish that as quickly as possible. And, you know, a, a lot of times my relationship ends up very friendly with my, with my clients. Some of my best friends now are started out as people that, you know, came to me to make a record. And you know, I'm going to be in a wedding of one of my clients <laughs> in October. <laughs> so, you know, and we just met, you know, from a record. We didn't know anybody. Some some common musicians had told him he should, you know, come to me and we made the record. And it's just like, yeah, now he's one of my great friends. So, you know, obviously that's kind of the best case scenario. But I always just try to I, I want him to trust me. I want him to think like, yeah, this guy's like on the team and trying to help make the record as good as it can be. And he's okay if if I don't agree with him. And, you know, I just want it to be comfortable. There's always that weird thing where the client, where the relationship is professional, over time turns into friendly. And that's when in the past, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it sound bad, but I mean, it's like, then you let your guard down and then you start to get like, well, a little more flexible. And sometimes... I, not in my case, but I know, you know, people have had the, these issues where it becomes so lax that that professional relationship turns so friendly that all professionalism goes out the window and then you start to have issues with money, with with the client, and then it just, it gets weird. So on that spectrum, how do you keep them in this box where it's like, yeah, we're friends, but we have a professional relationship too. Yeah, that's a challenge. Although I've had very few problems of that nature that were actually problems. I feel like the best way to do it is to just be really upfront about the business stuff. And, you know, that's where you wish you had somebody representing you. You know, mm-hmm. you got to have a money conversation with somebody who's a client you really like and also your friend. You know, those are the moments when you go, oh man, if I had a rep, this would be much easier on my soul. But at the same time, I've just found that when I'm really direct with people and just say, hey, look, here's, this is a business email or this is a business conversation. Let's talk about this. You know, they respond well to that. I don't know. It's kind of every situation is a little different. And I feel like because of the nature of the business and how the work comes to you, you have to be kind of able to sort of work on your feet really fast and figure things out, you know, when it comes to that. But yet at the same time, when you do have that personal connection, I don't know about you, but if I had somebody managing me or I had some kind of business representative, there's kind of a weird, like, you know, unless I know that the artist has a representative like that, <laughs> then I'd feel weird. Like, well, I'm sending my henchmen in to uh, take your money. But um, but when we get together, it's totally cool. Yeah, you know? like, oh, hey, bud, why'd your rep call me today? You know, like, what was that about? Like, <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or I can imagine getting a phone call from, you know, an artist going, hey, man, you need to call the dogs off. Your guy's being, like, too aggressive. And uh, 
I'll pay you when I can, or yeah. I can't afford what your guy's asking. Can you intervene? Then it becomes like, oh. And it's even worse than if you were just dealing with it on your own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've been doing this for without a net, we'll say, meaning without a day job to back you or any other kind of gig. How long have you been doing it, did you say? Uh, without a day gig, about uh, 11 years. And okay. There was about a two-year overlap where I had some I was a bartender. I was a, uh, I sold real estate for like a year and then I um, worked for a doctor. I was like a weight loss counselor. And then, yeah, about 2006, I'd say this kind of got going. How is it to make the transition for you to come from like a steady paycheck, a guaranteed income to a little bit of the unknown? Maybe the recording gigs are flush for six months, but you don't know what's beyond that six months. How have you dealt with the uncertainty of the freelance world? Um, uh, wine? <laughs> <laughs> red or white? Red, always red. Okay. I don't yeah, always white. red. Like, just like the replacements say. Uh, no. Um, well, part of me always just said, you know, if this stops working, you'll just go get a job. I don't think about it too much anymore, to be honest. Definitely in the first, in the transition, there's a lot of fear. And, you know, then I was trying to get some equipment and I didn't really have anything. And so every bit of money that I was making, I would like go out and try to get something to make the studio better. Or now it's a little more smooth. I have a little bit more steady work now. I've been able to develop a couple avenues that are essentially, in my mind, as stable as any other job. You know what I mean? In that any other job can go away. It seems like with modern technology, jobs are being eliminated and then created. So there's this constant kind of, oh, now this is gone and this is the job. So you have to just be willing to react either way. I try mm -hmm. not to operate with a lot of fear. <laughs> I try to just move forward without that. It's not always possible, but. Do you have a, over the years, I mean, that's a chunk of time to kind of keep the plates in the air, so to speak, but have you developed a, a philosophy or a method, a financial method to stay alive and to make sure that if you do hit a dry period, you're okay. You know, I've been pretty good at, at managing money, I guess, in a way, you know? And so, yeah, it's not, I'm not in a position now where it's like, if I went a couple months without work, like, okay, that's, I could do that. It wouldn't be great, but, and yeah, I just, to be quite honest, it's, I'm not that good at uh, conceptualizing these kind of things. You know, I don't, I've been lucky in my life in that what I've pursued as far as music and this has at least given me enough money to survive, you know, as, right. lo as long as I've been doing it. And so try to just think about it like, yeah, this is what I do. And this is how, you know, and I just, if things look like they're drying up, I try to stir the pot a little bit. And when things are really busy, I kind of sit back and, and don't try to stir the pot. Cause then I'll get, I've had times where I was just like really overwhelmed and feeling like I was on the verge of, Oh, am I doing good work today? Like, am I burned out? I've worked 30 days in a row. Is that good? Is that okay? As an audio engineer, is that, am I being unprofessional doing that? I'd like to talk a little bit about that, about stirring the pot when, when, you know, there doesn't seem to be any work coming in. What's the approach there for yourself? Like if you get up in the morning and you go, shit, man, I haven't had any calls in like four days and I don't see anything really other than maybe one project down the pipeline that's maybe going to happen. And we all know how that may be, you know, hey, man, we're thinking about recording. Uh-huh. Sure yeah. you are. Um, but you're not going to do it when I really need you to. So what do you do to stir the pot to drum up some action, so to speak? I usually reach out. You know, I'll reach out to people maybe who I haven't talked to in a while. Uh, you know, at this point, I've been I've been playing music and recording music and toured a, a, a bit in bands. And so, you know, I know a lot of people all over the country at this point and, you know, just kind of reach out and like see what people are doing. You know, mm -hmm. it's amazing if you just like run into somebody. Oh, you know, the other thing is, is I try to go out more because I find that like now that, you know, on the scene, if I go out, I usually know a few people at a show. It's amazing how if I'll just get out of my little hole for the night and go have a couple of drinks and watch a band, like I'll be talking to somebody about making a record, you know, next thing I know. And because somebody said, oh, this is Anthony. He makes records. You know, you, sh you guys should meet, you know, and that's like happens all the time. <laughs> and so I feel like it's like one thing I do definitely because I can get a little hermetic. I think that our this job lends itself towards becoming hermetic in a way. And you got to fight that urge sometimes. And definitely the uh, slow intake of work is a great motivator 
or getting out there and, and meeting some people and talking to people. And Yeah, I was just having this conversation last night. I, I went to uh, an AES event with uh, Jessica Thompson, who's a, uh, who's been on my show, who uh, does audio restoration, and Anthony Weiner from uh, MWorks Mastering. And um, he also does some, uh, I think, some consulting for Isotope. Uh, from, he's from Cambridge or, Bo- or, so- or somewhere in Boston. Anyways, they were doing a, a thing at uh, Fantasy Studios out here in Berkeley, and I had to, like, I, I'd been working at home so much that, and my wife and kids are out of town right now, that I wasn't leaving. And I was like, I got to get out of this house and go talk to other people in person. And, you know, whether that drums up work, because obviously, you know, you're talking about, what I like is you're talking about going to see bands. What I'm talking about is, you know, going to interact with other peers. Those two can yield very different results in terms of stirring the pot. (laughs) Well, when you go to talk to all your peers, you know, it's like they're all looking for the same work you are. So, you know, it's a bunch of guys in the room and girls looking for the same nugget, you know? So it's, when you go out to see the bands, those are all the guys that are going to, you know, hire you eventually, you know? Rarely am I hired by another talented audio engineer. They don't need me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And that's always my thing with like uh, the Recording Academy in Naris. It's like, well, okay, I, I could participate in this in these events. And I do like the AES events just for the for the educational aspect of it. But man, going to some parties with other audio people is just like, <laughs> what, what am I doing here? It can be rough. It can be rough. It's, it can be a little uh, it's, uncomfortable. You know, it's good to share stories and trade ideas, but yeah, I, I'm with you. Going out to bars and stuff to, to see bands, this brings up something that may be a problem for you know people in rural areas or people in um, smaller less exciting suburban areas, as well as areas like big cities that are going through huge transitions where uh, clubs are getting shut down. The ability to go see live music, you know, while it's easy to go see, relatively easy to go see a big band in a big location uh, at a Coliseum or something like that, do you find it's Maybe not in Chicago, but do you find that people in other areas like those that I've named are having a, a harder time seeing live music because there's just, there's no clubs, there's no live music or clubs are getting shut down? Have you talked to anybody about that kind of problem? I think it's a huge problem. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was playing in bands a lot, like in the nineties, you know, and we would go and play in all these little small town clubs, you know, and they'd, they'd, you know, there'd be Friday, Saturday night gigs in these little towns in Illinois, you know, there'd be a couple clubs. And I feel like now it's very much whatever is left of the live music scene is, is very city centric, you know, around here there's Chicago, which is like where everybody comes basically. And then, you know, you got to go two and a half hours South of here to Champaign or, or up into Michigan or to the quad cities and on Davenport, Iowa to get anywhere where there's, any kind of meaningful music scene going on, you know? I think those places are struggling in a lot of ways and that the music is, you know, the music clubs are just a symptom of a, of a greater problem. But it's still really alive and well here in the city, you know, and I, that's what's kept me here for so long is the energy. What would you say to somebody who does live in an area where they're underserved with uh, musical activity? Man, open a, open a club or... Open a club. Get, get, a, get a space, you know, find a space... Find a, you know, start it on a, on a really local level of like DIY, get like somebody's house where you can throw house party gigs. One of the most fun gigs I did last year was a house party in, in this like garage slash backyard. And there were just like a couple hundred people there and it was a blast. (laughs) It was a great gig. It was so fun. And, uh, you know, back in the day when I was in college and stuff, that was happening all the time. There'd be just, you know, somebody throw a big party and they'd have a couple bands and, you know, on the weekend. And I just think that stuff, it's like, you can still do that, right? It's, there's no, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, I would see that there's a couple avenues there is that um, you may live in a small town, but every small, not every small town, but most small towns have some artsy fartsy person who is going to be that person who has the odd building downtown that they're trying to do art stuff in and music stuff. Those are the people I think that, you know, it'd be good to become allies with and and support so that music can happen. But, you know, and it's funny is a lot of us, you know, retreat to our our homes for our studios. You you mentioned it. You said it's kind of the there's there's something bigger going on where we're all becoming even more isolated from one another and 
there's just not as much music happening in certain towns, certain places. I could create a whole nother podcast on <laughs> some of the some of the reasons for that. But it's important, I think, to get out and support those people who are trying to do something artistic and and even to the extent, which I think is kind of cool that I've always been fascinated by is house. You mentioned, you know, throwing house parties. There's also this whole subculture of house concerts, generally kind of lower volume, acoustic-based type events. People love that stuff. You know, where they pay 10 bucks and invite 20 to 30 people to a house to watch an, an artist who's on their way between gigs. I have some friends in southern New Mexico who do it on occasion. And uh, yeah, get yourself aligned with those people, I would say. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the that's what could bridge the gap in those little towns. It's like, oh, hey, come through here, do this house party, you know? And, and you know, pe- artists want to get exposed to those people. It's just hard for it to make financial sense for them to go there, you know? And so they don't end up there, but they're, you know, I mean, we've always been forced to be very creative as, as people trying to make money on art, you know? So this is just a new, new wall that we have to circumvent, I suppose, you know? Um, And my, like what you were saying, my friend calls it the Netflix syndrome, which is just like, everybody's at home on their couch watching Netflix and not going out because it's an option. And it's like, if you, before we had all these at-home entertainment options, it was much more likely that people would go out because there's no, it's boring at home, you know? And now it's not nearly as boring at home. So people, and you know, everybody is is uh, susceptible to it. I try to try to, like I was saying, try to fight that urge sometimes. Be like, okay, you have to get out of the house today. You have to go to a club, talk to people, hear music in real time, experience the world. And I think that that ignites creativity in you too. Like there's a lot more stimulation to your creativity out in the world than there is on your couch, generally speaking, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. You could have a whole other podcast about this. (laughs) Oh, I know. As recording professionals, if we don't participate and contribute, whether it's even buying drinks at a bar and supporting the bar that has the band that pays the band. I mean, this is one long chain of events and uh, it's and it's an ecosystem that it, if we're not too careful here, we could find ourselves in a very precarious position in the future. Yeah, I agree. Because people still want those options out there, but is the question is, are they willing to go do what it takes to keep those options out there? You know, yeah. like everybody would say, if you said, there's going to be a great new live music venue in your town. Like uh, what percentage of people would be like, no, screw that. You know, (laughs) not very many. Everybody would be like, cool, great. But then now what percentage of people will go out to that place regularly and spend money there and support its existence? You know, because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, you know? Well, and I'll I'll put this out there and if somebody wants to take me up on it and we can brainstorm this, but the term think tank conjures up for me just, you know, images of people getting together to dissect or shape agenda for whether it's people on the left or people on the right. It'd be great to have a think tank in, at least in the United States, about how to foster music, whether it's music in public schools or music in clubs and recording, so that our ecosystem of of what we, we enjoy so much does not disappear and we can... Uh, you know, see all of these things continue. I know I'm just, I'm thinking out loud here and I don't, I don't mean to do it on your interview. Oh, no, no, that's a great idea. I mean, you know, think about get somebody like, you know, Richard Branson or somebody, you know, I mean, he was obviously very interested in music at a certain point from a business perspective. And I think that's a great idea because really there, there is not a lot of information collected about it. We don't even really have like a clear sense. I don't think of what the problem exactly is and how bad it is and, you know, we're musicians. We're not out there like funding scientific studies. We're trying to be weird artists doing our little weird thing. And, and so, you know, it's like we're not wired that way. Yeah. So if Richard Branson, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a call. I, I doubt it. Give me a call and we'll uh, we'll figure it out. Maybe you can help fund my think tank concept here and we can uh, keep uh, recording and live music and music in schools in full swing. So, um Anthony Gravino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little pause here. We're going to talk to our friends over at Audio-Technica. Specifically, we're going to call Gary Boss, who's the marketing director over at Audio-Technica. And he's the person I've probably known over there the longest. So uh, let's get Gary on the line and see what's new over at Audio-Technica. So stand by. Let me make the call. Thank you for calling Audio-Technica. Please let 
Gary speaking. Hello, Gary Boss. Matt Boudreau here. Hey, Matt. Calling to find out what's what's new at AT. Well, we have something exceptionally new, and uh, it's one of these rare instances where we're actually announcing a product and we're shipping it right immediately as of now. And that's a new entry into my 50 series line of microphones that you may be aware of. Mm -hmm. Previous models in the line included the AT5040, which is that quad rectangular capsule microphone that kind of made a bit of a stir in the market, if you remember that guy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was cool about that is the whole kind of raison d'etre of that microphone was this purity of sound kind of concept so where there were no no pads or switches it had exceptionally low noise floor to it and we used these uh, unique four rectangular capsules and the concept there was we could get a faster capsule because we used four smaller capsules but we'd get the benefits of a large diaphragm microphone such as low noise and whatnot it was essentially consider this to be a virtually dead quiet, large diaphragm side address with some of the properties and transients of a small diaphragm. So that was kind of that guy. Got it. But what we kind of found out over time in the market is it was very much a diva microphone, meaning when it worked well, it would give you the best performance. But if you weren't treating it perfectly, it could be temperamental, meaning you had to have a really good quality preamp and predominantly one that would go down to a true zero dB when you gained it down. Otherwise, it could overload your preamp and cause impedance problems and things of that nature. So it was very much a, a diva microphone, performed stellar when you treated it right. So the newest member of the 50 series is called the AT5047. Now, if anyone knows the Audio-Technica line, we have another microphone with a 47 in it, and that's the 4047. And that's uh, notable because it has a big output transformer. So essentially what this is, is a 5040. It's the same capsule, but we tweak the electronics and put an output transformer in it. And it makes it a much more stable, much more kind of universally usable a microphone in the 50 series, still very boutique, very handmade. And it also has the highest dynamic range of any condenser we've ever made. And I think the highest dynamic range of any credible spec I've seen on any high-end mic at 141 dB of dynamic range. Is it the same transformer as the 4047? I think it's a similar transformer. I What I do know is it's not an off-the-shelf. So they did try all the typical high-end transformer, the Lundells and the Jensen's and whatnot. And this was such a unique application, they ended up hand-turning a whole bunch. I don't know. I've heard crazy quotes of how many transformers they built. And they just started doing a test of the transformer with the capsule in this microphone until they found the one, you know, the windings that uh, that best suited this microphone. So it is a proprietary Audio-Technica-made transformer. Very cool. Well, we'll have to look for that. Thanks, Gary, and uh, appreciate your support for the podcast. And uh, for the listener, if you want to check out uh, the microphone that uh, Gary's talking about, that's at audio-technica.com, so be sure and visit that. Let's get back into our interview here with Mr. Anthony Gravino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Back to your, your situation, who mentored you or did you have a mentor? I did not have a formal mentor. I would say that the, the two guys that I learned the most about recording from were John Pines and Adam Schmidt, those two guys. I don't know if you know Adam, but he's another champagne guy, super talented. Just working with those guys early on when I was the musician and watching and kind of when it got to mix time, I remember... Like the first time we did a mix and I was there and John had this, you know, his, he's got a great control room. I don't know if you've ever been to his studio, but he's got a really cool console and a ton of outboard gear. And I just remember being in there and really kind of diving into the process and him sort of, you know, inviting me <laughs> sort of into the process. You know what I mean? Like I was kind of the new guy in the band too. And I was trying to sort of get hands on in the production. So it was, I was a little skeptical about whether or not it was a good idea. And he, you know, they, those guys just kind of like, yeah, yeah, come on up. Like, what do you think it should sound like? You know? And then, you know, those guys were also really good about when I had questions, they'd always take my phone call and answer my stupid technical question that I was trying to figure out, you know, when I was 
first getting a studio together because there's, like I said, it's just such a deep hole to dive into. Do you get a lot of emails of people asking to intern for you? I get a few. And there's another, that's another controversial issue in my world. I've thought about it a lot. I've actually sat down with a number of people and I just have not sat in front of the person yet who I said I would trust in my studio without me there. And and honestly, it has nothing to do with anything other than just a lot of X factors as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's not like one thing. It's just, I, I trust my first impressions of people. And so far, the people that I've met, I think to myself, the, the main criteria is, would you feel comfortable leaving this guy in your studio with a client to do some work while you were somewhere else? And it's just hard to find that person. I'm This is also a private space and I don't let any other people engineers come in here and work. So it's very much my world, you know, and the idea of having somebody else here, I feel like I would almost um, give more than I would get. And I know that sounds selfish, but it's like, if you're the one giving somebody the opportunity, you've got to feel like you're getting something out of it too, in terms of they're helping you. So yeah, I've never gone down that road. I've gotten several inquiries, interviewed a few people and just never bit. Bringing clients into the space that you have, I always ask stuff like this because I'm all, maybe there's a s- subtle paranoia that I have. I have the that, same paranoia. I know where you're going with this, I think. And go ahead. <laughs> bringing clients that you don't know very well and that unbeknownst to you, they could be like some crazy crackhead serial killer. You don't know, but you bring them into a space that is personally yours. You live in this building and they know where you live, of course. So, how do you vet your clients in this case? Well, a lot of my work comes from directly from other people that I know pretty well. Okay. And I feel like earlier on, it was a little more of a problem where I was taking a little more random stuff than I am now. Whereas I feel like a lot of the work that I get now comes pretty directly from communication between people who are kind of on the same wavelength and straight up shooters and just guys on the music scene that are around. I mean, in the beginning, I remember I was like doing Craigslist ad, you know, like engineer, you know, and I got some weird shit from that. I will tell you that. That was, there were a couple that were just like, oh, what am I doing? So I stopped that. That was, it didn't take me long. Um, But really uh, in the last, I mean, I can't even remember the last time where it was even an issue at all, you know? And I always kind of do my little internet searches of people and, you know, you can kind of poke around and usually this town is big and it's small. Like, you know, I usually know somebody that knows that person somehow or knows something about them. So, you know, when I get a session, I'll ask around, Hey, you know, this guy, you know, this guy, whatever. And usually I have a pretty good idea of what's walking in the door before they come in. Eccentric people. That's fine. I could deal with that. It's just, I've, I've had a couple oddball clients in the past. Not all clients, of course, are dangerous, but have you ever fired a client? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Several. Um, When I realize that I am not the right person for the job, I don't try to keep doing it. I just walk away and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm not making it better. And if I feel like I'm not, and it's usually, you know, and yeah, it's usually because of some sort of the client just you know, it can be a million different things. A lot of people just don't really understand the process necessarily going in. And I feel like the less experienced people are, the more likely I am to, you know, step away. But it does, I mean, it's, I make it sound like it happens all the time. It, you know, a handful of people, I've just said, hey, look, I respect what you're doing, but I don't think I'm the right guy to do this. And I walked away, you know. Do you have some kind of routine that you'd like to follow that, that get your get your day going or motivates you? Uh, not, not really. Not, not in a formal sense. I mean, I drink coffee every morning. Yeah, that's my routine every day. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of coffee. I drink a lot of that. No, I, I can't say that I do. Every day is a little different. And sometimes I wake up really early in the morning and sometimes I was out really late the night before and I sleep in. And usually my morning routine involves taking care of the cat, cleaning up the kitchen and, you know, getting ready, getting the studio ready for whatever's going to happen that day, which yeah. could be who knows? Crackhead serial killer. <laughs> Could be a crackhead serial killer. Are there any quotes from any, whether it's people inside the recording world or outside the recording world that uh, mottos or anything like that you go by? Okay, here, here's here's what I, I said this the other day to some people. There's three rules in business and you can learn them all from the godfather. And someone much smarter than I told me this one time. Uh, one is <clears throat> you always make money for your friends. Two is you never ask somebody to do something that's not in their best interest. And three is it's always personal. (laughs) That's all you need to know. 
Very well put. I love that. People can find out about you at anthonygravino.com. Your studio is called The Drake. Yeah. That's a that's an inside joke, basically. It's okay. <laughs> there's, there's nothing official about that. We live on Drake Avenue, and you know, all these artists just started. It was kind of a slang amongst like this certain group of people who were recording here when we first started this place. And and we were just like people would say, well, what's the name? And I'm like, I don't know. We don't, it doesn't have a name. It's a studio and a two and a three flat, you know, like I don't know what it's called. And then people just started saying in emails, oh, I'll be over at the Drake at two, you know, and or you know, like, can can we book the Drake on the, you know? And so then we were just like, well, I guess it's the Drake because there's also a famous hotel here called the Drake. One time, a client actually went downtown to the Drake Hotel, and they called me on the phone and said, "I'm outside the Drake. Where's your studio?" And <laughs> I said, well, I walked outside of my place. And I said, "Well, I don't see you out here. Where, where are you?" And he's like. I'm standing over, you know, it's right by the Hancock and <laughs> that's downtown. And I said, oh, you're at the Drake Hotel, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was not where they were supposed to be. I'm in the lobby. Where are you? <laughs> Where's your studio? This place is huge. What is your philosophy with regarding gear, gear lust, acquiring gear, selling gear? How do you deal with gear? First of all, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I try not to get too quote unquote lustful about it, although people would come in here and say, yeah, you got a problem. You know, I find that the best decisions I've made with equipment were to save up a little more and get the really good thing and have fewer really good things that I really know how to use as opposed to a million options. I'm not like an options guy. I want to know what something does. I want to have a few tools that I know really well. So my approach to gear is to buy older stuff generally, not always, but a lot of older stuff that's in good condition and that I believe will retain its value over time because the good thing about gear is if you make the right choices and you buy the right things, it's essentially like money in the bank because it's really easy to liquidate equipment these days with the internet. And so to me, it was like, if I can have this tool here and I'm using it to, to make records and it's helping me and it's retaining its value. I mean, some of the things like my U67 is worth a lot more than what I paid for mine not that long ago. You know, in, in like I think I bought mine in 2011, maybe 2000. Yeah. And I mean, they have gone up a lot since then. I saw that in the list. I was like, oh, that went up in value. <laughs> and probably your KM84s and your 86s. Yep, all, all that, yeah. And, and you know, the thing about that is, is I use those, those five microphones that you just said, I use on almost every session, at least one of them, you know? It's just like that, that core is so powerful to me. And I can take those to any studio. If I go to a studio and it's a nice studio, but they don't have a great mic collection, it's just like so easy to walk in with six or seven really good mics. You know, mics was sort of where I really wanted to have the good stuff because the, that is the most important piece of electronic equipment, I think. In the whole. I have to resist the temptation to buy microphones. So and I, I mostly mix and master these days. I haven't been doing a lot of tracking in the last year and a half, it seems. And... So when I see microphones online, I'm like, I, I want to buy that. But realistically, I haven't been tr tracking enough to, to justify it. Man, I had to just like resist so hard the other day. There was a cat selling a C24 and it was a really good price. I mean, it was a really good price, but even a really good price on a C24 is like a new car, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> I didn't do it, but man, I was just like, oh, I would love to have one of those, you know. I see you have an EMT 140. Yes, I do have an EMT 140. I lean on that. Is there a story behind that? The story is, the, the best part of the story is actually how difficult it was to get it in here. Yeah, no shit. Uh, we literally had to go over the rail on the back porch with it because it would not go around this corner to go up these stairs on the back porch. It was just too big. And it took six people to lift it up in here. And it's in a very, it's in a room that is barely big enough to hold it as far as the, because it's like eight, eight feet long or something like that. And they're heavy. It weighs like 450, I'd say 450 pounds. I mean, they have a nice little system with the little poles that go through them to lift them. I don't know if you're familiar with the little pole system on them, but it does. No, I'm not actually. Well, there's a little, there's on each side of it, there are these little brackets and you can you can, there's a little metal stick or sorry, it's a wood stick that goes through the brackets. And so it allows you to lift it on each side 
with this stick that goes through these two holes and it's like they're, the brackets are mounted to the side of the EMT. There's a little drawing you can see online somewhere of these guys like smiling and carrying and everybody always says nobody smiles when you carry an EMT. That's complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for the audience, like if, you, if you've never seen one in person, they're big. Oh, they're, they're, they're really, huge. It's a big wooden box that weighs a ton and, uh, you know, there's some fragile stuff inside that... There's asbestos inside. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. There is asbestos. In fact, my tech came over and the first thing he did was take the amplifier out, shine his flashlight in there to see, because apparently if it's not stored correctly, the asbestos can kind of dry out and become airborne and it can be kind of dangerous. So yeah. he's like, I got to look at this and make sure it's not like shedding asbestos anywhere. But luckily it wasn't. So uh, it's not an issue. But yeah, there's this big, long piece of asbestos that runs the length of it. Do you guys have insurance yes. for this, for all your gear? Oh, yes. I have uh, a separate insurance policy on, on all my equipment. Who do you go through and do you recommend them? I use a fella here. Uh, his name's Jeff Woodman. Lovely mm-hmm. guy. Huge music fan. He also is part of a website called Heria that does a lot of like live, live sessions. Jeff's great. He works for Erie Insurance. He's been super cool. He gets back to me like immediately. He's super into music. He, he like goes to South by Southwest every year and loves music festivals and so I just, you know, if I, if I can deal with people who understand my industry a little bit in any sort of business realm, I'd prefer that. You know, I like people who are like, yeah, I'm a music fan. I, I get what you do, you know. Would you be willing to send me his contact information to put in the show notes? Absolutely. Okay. Have you ever had to file a claim? Nope. With due respect to him, you, you don't know what the experience is like to, to go through a, maybe a theft or a fire and to see if you can get your your gear replaced. I do not. No, I cannot. Okay. I cannot speak to that at all because I have been fortunate and not had that problem. That's well, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> well, that's cool, man. I appreciate you uh, taking the time out. Great talking to you. Good information. And uh, maybe I'll bump into you in the future in person. I hope so. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's really been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. I'll see you later. Take it easy. There it is. Anthony Gravino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Another showdown and another good batch of information. Hope you enjoyed that. We, of course, have run out of time, and you all know the routine. We got to thank everybody. So let's start with Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. And, of course, want to thank our sponsors who do support us. Gearslits.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, and Loudon Audio. And I appreciate your time listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.